Hey there, my name is Abby Govindan. I am a stand-up comedian and writer, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Yeah. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hey everyone, on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with comedian and writer, Abby Govindan. Stay tuned. So what makes something comforting? Does it make you feel at ease? Does it feel like home? Can you simply express yourself and be who you are? And speaking of expressing yourself, thank you so much for listening to this and for sharing it with your friends and family. If you've been enjoying these, by the way, thanks also for rating, downloading, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And for following Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. Now, we all crave this sense of feeling at home, that freedom to share and offer a window into your thoughts and activities. Now, for someone like comedian and writer Abby Govindan, performing on stage with an audience and creating content has often been both a place to find that comfort, share thoughts on life as a South Asian American, and even use her platform to guide herself through struggle and the tenuous nature of being an artist. Abby, who goes by Abhi, which is short for Abhinaya, is from Houston, Texas, and found comedy and writing in her formative years to be a welcome craft and sparkling vehicle to navigate through life's ebbs and flows. She debuted on stage in New York City over five years ago, and with a fresh blend of warmth, ingenuity, and sharpness that's, by the way, not easy to always find. She found her way to colleges and venues across the U.S., garnering lots of attention on social media, and opening for Hassan Minaj, Daniel Sloss, and Russell Peters. But, you know, equally impressive is Abhi's authentic success in using her storytelling skills to share how she's grappled with depression and suicidality, sexual assault and harassment, and her genuine search within these complex experiences for answers. Her latest solo act, How to Embarrass Your Immigrant Parents, offers an intimate, hilarious, and vulnerable love letter to her heritage, her journey, and her parents by saying no to the Indian accent and yes to finding common ground. So when we caught up to chat recently, I found Abhi back at her parents' house in Houston. We talked about it all, even through the chirping of a smoke alarm that needed a battery, something I could completely relate to. And I asked her what it was like to be visiting back in the comfort of her parents' home, not as a student, but as a professional comedian and writer. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to my uh, neighbor about this yesterday. So I have this neighbor who's my, one of my mom's best friends and like our printer never works. So I always go over to her place to print and I, I'm leaving for India today. And then I was like, don't worry, I'll be back to bother you in two weeks. And she was like, oh, why do you say bother? And I was like, I think it's pretty clear why I say bother because like I am a 25 year old and most 25 year olds who are like professionals, like don't visit home once every other month right. or like bother their like, parents friends you know they're like childhood un uncles and aunties and stuff um but it's really cool I mean like this career is like really really unpredictable like for example I've had like the worst month ever like I've never been closer to going to grad school than this last month but um it's really cool to be able to come back and and have like built this like really special career for myself and 
getting to answer all these questions and being able to destigmatize it for the community. I have, I've had the privilege of being able to do this full-time pretty immediately. Like I never had to do a full-time job and then transition into this like a lot of people do. And so this is kind of just all I've ever known. And so uh, just being able to, I mean, like make people laugh for a living and get paid for it and being able to come home and, and answer questions about it in a really enthusiastic way. Um, it's just like really, really like cool. I mean, the Indian community gets a lot of shit from comedians for like being strict and like right. uh, education obsessed and like asking when you're getting your arranged marriage and stuff. But like my experience with the Indian comedian, it, Indian community in Houston, though not always yeah. positive, has never been necessarily that. Like the Indian community in Houston has always been very, very supportive of like my comedy endeavors yeah. and stuff. And so like. Um, I just love, I mean, I just love coming home. That's why I'm always home. Like my mom, my sister always makes fun of me. She's like, you know, most people, when they move away from home, they don't visit every other month. I was like, yeah, I do know that. But um, I just really love Houston. Like I carry a lot of pride for the city. And I also wonder whether, I, I mean, I guess from, from my vantage point, I was wondering whether it also builds a lot of fodder for more material. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, like, I talk about, like, the current hour that I have is kind of like a love letter to my parents. Um, yeah. Fodder for material in the sense that, like, I always take funny stories and I like telling them on stage, but not fodder for material in the sense of, like, um, I think that every stereotype joke that can be made has been made to death, and so I really try to avoid those, you know, like, oh, auntie's asking me when I'm going to grad school, or like, oh, like, marriage, or whatever, like, I, I it's not that I, it's not that I think that people shouldn't be making those jokes it's just that I think that if you make jokes like that you should be bringing something fresh to the table and I genuinely don't believe I have anything fresh to like bring on that front you know I guess from my vantage point I was also thinking more along the lines of like it's very different you're at a different stage in your life as opposed to growing up uh, around the Indian auntie and uncle crowd yeah but more like you know hey you're a 25 year old you have a career what's life like being in a different phase of your life now that is a little bit more along the developed and mature side as opposed to, you know, growing up around those Indian aunties and uncles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I mean, like, yeah, it's just really cool. I mean, like, these aunties and uncles have literally watched me grow up, and I think I'm a completely different person now than I was 10 years ago or even five years ago or even like three years ago pre-pandemic and I really cherish that like I have this really solid community and I'm really really privileged uh compared to like a lot of comedians you know if this doesn't work out then I can move home and I can like you know take time to like go to grad school or figure out my next move and um I won't really I won't really carry much shame uh I mean like there's shame with like trying to do something you love and failing and of course that that'll always be natural but I think coming home to the uh Houston community like no one's really gonna you know, like judge me for it or anything. Like I think more than anything, at least my mom's immediate friends. Like I really don't know what the extended Houston community thinks of me. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't be happy to find out, but um, like my mom's immediate friends, I know that they would not make me feel guilty at all. They'd be like, wow, like yeah. you really tried to chase your dream. You tried to make this happen. And like, it didn't sure. work out and we're here for you no matter what. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, for you growing up, who were some of your comedy heroes? And, and I'm actually especially curious if anyone on that list would be, you know, a complete surprise. Um, I don't think anyone on that list would be a complete surprise. Well, anyone on the immediate list. So let me tell you the immediate list. The first time I saw an Indian person do stand-up comedy, I was at Temple Camp. Um, I was at the Osher Vidya Gurukulam in New Jersey or Pennsylvania. I forget what state it's in. It's like on the border somewhere. 
Um, And uh, my cousins are five and seven years older than me and my two cousins. So I was, I want to say like eight or nine and they were 13 and and 15. And um, so I would always stay up and hang out with their friends, even though like I was on the younger end, like typically kids my age didn't stay up late and like hang with the older kids. So one day I was like hanging out with the 17 year olds and one of them was like, oh my God, like you guys want to watch of YouTube videos. And, and this was what, 2005, 2006. And I, I'm realizing I'm getting to that age where I say like stuff like back in my back day. Back then, like right, crazy. yeah. Yeah, but like back, like back in 2005, there was like one re- like recreation center and there was in that one recreation center, there was one like Microsoft 1992 computer that like you had to like blow the dust off, turn it on. It would take a solid 12 minutes to turn on. And then like, because of how long the YouTube videos would take to load, everyone just kind of had to like be on a consensus or like the watch. So this one kid was like, do you guys want to watch Russell Peters? Yeah. And I was like, oh, who's that? And they were like, oh, he's a stand-up comedian. And of course, with the, with a name like Russell Peters, which uh, I mean, like we now know is, is a very common Indian yeah. name because the Christians colonized India. And there are so many like, you know, people with Christian names. But that, sure. back when I was eight and I didn't have that cultural context, like I was like, Russell Peters, probably some white guy. And yeah. then like, watch this hilarious Indian man, like make all of these jokes. And it blew my mind, literally. And like, Russell Peters was the first person to go viral before like viral truly existed. You know, yeah. like he yeah. had this special that was like ripped off of like VCR or whatever and, <laughs> and then like posted on YouTube and right. viewed millions of times around the world. And you know, he's just so enigmatic. Like, in fact, he is in Houston right now um, doing a sold out run of like eight shows here, doing his new hour called Act Your Age. And um, I went and uh, hung out with him, not last night, but the night before. And I watched the special called Act Your Age. And yeah, like, he's just like so good at what he does, like starts yeah. every single hour with like 30 minutes of crowd work so before he even gets into his prepared material he's like talking to people in the front row like able to just craft punchlines like I told him I was like I like I want to if I'm even five percent as good at at crowd work as you are like I I will be so successful you know so Russell Peters is like the very typical answer Hasan Minaj very typical answer Hari Kondabalu very typical answer um Amar Rahman is an Australian Indian comic or Australian Desi comic I should say and uh, he is very funny and he has been satirizing like white supremacy and racism for like a really long time. Um, and then Aparna Nancherla, of course, was the first time. I was going to say all men so far. Yeah, Aparna Nancherla. Yeah. I mean, um, Indian, the Indian American scene is just now getting like women uh, in yeah. like, you know, but the, the Indian British scene has been killing yeah. it with women. Like Sindhu V is like one of my favorite stand-up comedians. She's just like so like, talented british comedy like we can't even yeah they're they're killing it i'm wondering i mean the the comedy heroes for all those people probably are american you know white males or or for those for that matter like the people who've come before that what is up i'm just curious for you what does it take to be a comedy hero for you i mean like there's like you said there's there's comedy all over the place it's cross-cultural but irrespective of the material or even the medium, right? There must be some common threads here. For for you, is there is there sort of a theme here that like, hey, this is kind of what what tickles my fancy, or here's what inspires me when it comes to to these comedians? 
Yeah, so um, to your question earlier, like I think that um, something that people would be surprised to hear about me is that Dave Chappelle and Louis C.K. were like very, very big, like early influences for me. Um, yeah. I'm a huge Ali Wong fan, but mm-hmm. um, kind of what it takes for me to be inspired is uh, the punchline should be very, very unexpected and fresh. Like stand-up comedy is, is very oversaturated now. It was oversaturated when I was watching these Netflix specials at 15 and 16, and even I knew that, but now it is like extremely yeah. oversaturated. And so the unfortunate truth is that you really have to bring something new to the table. And I, I do think that all the comedians that I look up to like really do bring something new to the table. Like John Mulaney um, for like such a long time was one of my favorite comedians. And it, it's not that he isn't any longer for any reason other than the fact that he yeah. just like hasn't put out a special in almost five years. But like, sure. you know, he is just like so masterful with his craft and construction and he's like such a good storyteller. Um, Dave Chappelle can tell, and I, Dave Chappelle is like very controversial and understandably like I think that what he said about trans people is abhorrent and terrible but the reason that he shaped so much of my early comedy is because he can take any normal story and just make it like you know hilarious yeah Yeah, and um you know it like really broke my heart when he decided to go down this route of like transphobia and same with louis ck like i I watched all of louis ck specials when i was in high school i used to bring my friends over and sit them down and make them watch too and so when he turned out to be a creep i was like god I can't right. have anything. Well, um, and I mean, it, it means that you can revisit that material over and over again, the stuff you like and kind of pick and choose and say, hey, there's a, a particular spin that this person has. And and maybe even there's some nostalgia to, to what that person was doing back when before perhaps, hey, these are some of the, con- this is some of the content that I don't necessarily agree with, or I don't really find that funny. Yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, like, John Mulaney has this bit in his second special um, called, like, Why Buy the Cow? He's talking about, like, yeah. like why he wants to marry his wife. And it's just, like, so, so well done. Like, I've seen that bit maybe, like, 40, 50 times. I rewatch it whenever I need inspiration on, like, how to weave a tale and how to, like, make a yeah. metaphor funny. Um, and it didn't age well at all because he has since divorced his wife and like left her for a different <laughs> woman, but not quite the same resonance, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, like so well written. And so I think that's what it is for me, um, is that you really have to bring something new to the table. Um, Amy Schumer in like her last special growing, um, had a really, really funny set about being married to someone who's on the autism spectrum and like overcoming the, you know, stereotypes associated with that. And so I just really enjoy watching different comedians and watching them craft things. I've heard a lot of really good things about Gerard Carmichael. I haven't gotten around to watching his new stuff, but um, I read on Twitter that like Gerard Carmichael is who people should watch if they're sad about Dave Chappelle. Like Gerard Carmichael is who Dave Chappelle was like a couple of decades ago. But yeah. Gerard is like, we have every reason to believe Gerard isn't just going to like become transphobic tomorrow. You know? You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with comedian and writer, Abby Govindan. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, this is Cal Penn. I'm an actor, author, former public servant, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. 
Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with comedian and writer, Abby Govindan. Let me ask you one thing. Is, it, is there, I've had other comedians on, on the podcast and mm-hmm. it, it, I'm curious whether there are just some, those common threads that you share with other stand-up comics that outsiders just wouldn't really get from the performance side that like there's a, there's an unspoken kind of culture or there's this um, real resonance that, that happens that, you know, there's something about performing comedy on stage with a crowd that well, you have to sort of be a stand-up comic to to really understand what that experience is like. Yeah, um, to a certain degree, yeah. Like, I don't really trash talk stand-up comedians because this is a really, really difficult industry to make a name for yourself in. And um, yeah. now, especially with the internet, I mean, like, the internet is the reason I have a career, but the internet also incentivizes, I feel like, the wrong things. Like, it, you know, a stand-up clip to go viral, like, has to grab a very short attention span of, like, 15 year olds on TikTok, right? And that's not how yeah. it used to be. And now the algorithm incentivizes like outrage over like punchlines. And so I try not to trash talk other stand up comedians because this is a very, very difficult field to like make it in. That being said, yeah. like I think, yeah, I think there is camaraderie over like, you know, like I always say, every single stand up comedian, I mean, most of us have to be delusional to like do this, you know, because every yeah. single stand up comedian believes that they are the voice of a generation, believes that they right. are the one that's going to get famous. And some of us actually are the voice of a generation, but most of us are not. Like, most of us are just like telling ourselves that we are. And so it's just yeah. a very painful, very like humbling experience. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like I always have respect for people who go on stage and make themselves vulnerable. Like, even if I don't resonate with your comedy, even if I don't uh, think your jokes are necessarily funny, like I always have some level of respect for fellow stand-up comedians because this is yeah. a very like vulnerable field to pursue. Yeah, just putting yourself out there for sure. You, mm-hmm. you started, I'm, I think, around 2018, so it's been close to five years now. No, 2017, yeah. so it's been five. My five-year anniversary was December 17th. Yeah. So, so, you know, doing this and, and, you know, five years later, reflecting back on that, I mean, five years, especially in the digital age, and like you said, sort of like uh, internet based to some degree is, is actually a really long time for comedy and sort of like the life cycle of that is, is probably even itself gone through a couple of iterations being a digital creator as well. What, what's changed about you in that time? And, and maybe for that matter, what's changed about your audiences? even in the last five years? Yeah, I love this question, actually. Um, I've changed a lot in the last five years. I think that I became, I went from a consumer to a creator, which not very many people in the modern digital age get to experience. Like we watch a lot of people go viral on the internet. So it seems like a lot, but in like ratio wise, when you think about how many people actually go viral and are able to make a career out of this, like it's very, very little. And I, and I consider myself one of the lucky few. I think what's changed about me is I was a lot more critical five years ago. Like I hmm. was like, you know, a lot more like certain things shouldn't be joked about. And like, you know, I like was meaner to celebrities on the internet. Like I was like, it's okay. Like there's this like, like this belief that like, it's okay to be like mean to celebrities or people with large platforms because like at the end of the day, they're like rich or they have like, you know, institutional privilege. And like, that was the discourse back in like 2017 and 2018. I remember like, you know, as like a, um, 
20 how old was I 19 20 year old like that made sense to me at the time but I've since yeah. become a creator and so I've had this very unique experience of like switching sides essentially which like so few people get to do like most people stay consumers their whole life like a choice few get to become creators a, a lot of people who are creators are kind of like born into this empire like there's been this whole like nepo baby discourse right like nepotism and stuff and so I get to see in real I've gotten to see in real time like how discourse affects both sides and I really value that perspective because like for example when we talk about like quote-unquote cancel culture discourse like consumers are like oh you're beholden to us like at the end of the day like if we cancel you for something you said five ten years ago like that's not that big of a deal because you still have you know your career like cancel culture doesn't exist is like the consumer take on it right sure and then the creator take is like i'm human too like you have to take my feelings into consideration like this is a really like uh cancel culture like harms real people and then like it's very far removed from like the consumer perspective and so like as someone who's been on both sides uh, as like the consumer and the creator i feel like both sides just like kind of struggle to like listen to each other a little bit more like on the yeah. creator side like your consumers are oftentimes going to be people with much less institutional power than you and so i think they're it's a little bit valid for them to see things that you've you've said in your past and get frustrated and try to hold you accountable for it and so when you write it off as just like oh cancel culture you're like kind of not allowing yourself the room to grow or giving your audience the benefit of the doubt in that they like only expect the best from you but then from the yeah. consumer side like to um you know uh i think that consumers a lot of time like look at people with public platforms and kind of turn them into tv characters you know um yeah. As opposed to remembering there are, they are real people and they do make mistakes and that uh, forgiveness should be afforded to them. And oftentimes when consumers like talk about mistakes that their favorite creators have made, they talk about it in a very robotic way as opposed to like, oh, this person, like I don't with them anymore because they did this, this and this, as opposed to like remembering, you know, like we, we're friends and we have family members who have messed up and we have chosen to forgive them. And so like, sure. it's like, can we afford that same grace to people that will never know yeah. like personally and i mean like both sides is okay like at the end of the day like being canceled is not the end of the world but it is a very embarrassing experience to go through like i sure. really really sympathize with celebrities who've had old tweets pulled up or who said something embarrassing 10 or 11 years this is not this i mean i'm not talking about celebrities who were racist like two weeks ago like decrying cancel culture i'm talking about right and it is an embarrassing experience to go through but at the end of the day like i just think that both sides should listen to each other more and so i'm really grateful that i got to be on like both sides just because i feel like it makes me more intentional in the work that i create like if i think mm -hmm. that a punchline is funny i feel like i'm less inclined to workshop it or bring it to the public eye if i think it could be misconstrued as like problematic or yeah bad and that's not because i'm worried about getting canceled as much as like i really genuinely just don't want to like inadvertently cause harm to my audience and my audience is yeah. the reason that i have a career and um i would be devastated if right. i ever did anything to disappoint them you know like uh, at the end of the day like they're my clients yeah and i wonder if like it's you just having in the last five years sort of developed a little bit more awareness or at least it's almost by necessity you have to have an awareness of that yeah and then on top of that i wonder if the like sort of tug of war is just widening that much more right i mean it, it just is this constant battle to say okay what is what is going to actually be resonant for audiences without getting into a space that it's going to be either harmful or hurtful for either yourself and your career or for the audiences that are listening to you yeah exactly and i think that i mean like 
it's not really, a, I mean, like for me so far, it hasn't been a difficult line to toe, but like I'm very early on in my career. Sure. And like compared to, uh, I mean, like I read somewhere that like you don't find your stand-up voice until like 20 years in. So I'm like 25% right. of the way there. I have so much to learn. Yeah. So I don't want to get preachy by any means. Like I think that near nearer to like 20 years in my career, I'm sure I will have like offended someone or like caused some sort of harm um unintentionally i'd like to think that i would never be the type of person who would want to intentionally cause harm um and i think that's just part of the process but there but there also may be um i always am thinking of the balance measures right i mean like the unintentionally you may be bringing so much joy to people that you have no idea yeah 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 you know what i mean and but i think the idea of just sort of like you know being vulnerable getting up there that that thread that you mentioned also is important to sort of recognize you, you've written and performed very very openly of course sharing your struggles and successes with mental health about sexual assault you know for you as comedy is is a release or even a catharsis of of pain and I know you've written about this you know before does it matter how an audience responds then is is it necessary for a comedian for that therapy almost to be complete, to have an audience response to what you're actually presenting? Oh, interesting question. Um, I think that the audience response, at least to me, always matters because at the end of the day, like they, like I said, they're my clientele. And so if I'm like making jokes about like mental health and sexual assault that don't resonate with an audience, it's not even catharsis for me. Like if I make a joke that I thought was good, but the audience doesn't enjoy it, then like in turn, I don't enjoy it, right? Like my, like my job right. is to make people laugh. I have one joke where I like make fun of Indian comedians who like lie about their parents, like, uh, you know, who like use the accent in front of their parents and lie about things their parents said. And like, it almost right. never gets a laugh. And I always say like, that one was more for me than for you. So I think little moments like that, like feel cathartic because, you know, I find catharsis in comedy, but that catharsis only comes from like being the light at the end of the tunnel for other people as well. Like when I was in my darkest moments before I pursued comedy, like that's what stand-up was for me. And so being able to be that for other people is like really, really helpful and cathartic and part of the process. And and so if I write jokes, if I say jokes that don't resonate with an audience, I feel like in turn that um, kind of ruins the experience for me. Yeah. And, and, you know, from your audience's, you know, perspective, do you, do you find that when you're actually sharing those vulnerabilities that, that the audiences or, or even people even after a performance are, are sharing in that same vulnerability? I mean, have you, have you definitely sort of gotten that response where it's just kind of like, look, as, as you started performing, I could sense that um, this was actually a real release of that pain and, and they share in that almost. Yeah, so um, I talk in the current hours I'm touring with, I talk about like going to the psych ward after I was like hospitalized for a suicide attempt. And um, I will never forget this like cutest little college girl came up to me after my Seattle show and she was like, oh my God, me too. And I've like never seen another Indian girl talk about it. And like a few girls have like messaged me about it on, on the internet and stuff. And so like that is like really meaningful to me, you know, and like I'm just one person, like I'm not gonna convince myself that I'm out here like single-handedly destigmatizing mental illness in the South Asian community but I think that there's a lot of work to be done and I really value like the small amounts of progress that I've been able to see on a personal level yeah and and I'm curious then that because that audience response or even like the the audience feedback if you will or being able to sort of like resonate with an audience does that make your 
journey that much more complete? Is, is there some value to that? Or is it, it doesn't really matter? Like, you know, look, it's my journey. It needs to actually march on and, and you sort of go forward irrespective of what that feedback is. Um, I think both. Like, I think that it's, it does make me feel complete. Like it makes me feel like I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing. And, and it makes me feel like I was meant for this and I was born for this. But on the flip side, like I, if I constantly saw external validation, like that would just be like, you know, exhausting. <laughs> yeah. really fun. So, sure. And also something that I feel like I don't really have the mental energy to unpack is like, would I have as large of a platform as I do if I hadn't started talking about mental health and sexual assault as early on as I did, like pretty early on in my yeah. career, I developed this audience and, and something that I think that um, Indian people and a lot of ethnic minorities, but obviously I can only speak to the Indian experience. Um, a lot of ethnic minorities, specifically Indian people to like get this platform to get famous, they kind of have to have like a shtick, like a thing that they address yeah. and do to appeal to like cross-cultural audiences. And I feel like my thing pretty early on was like mental health. And I'm so grateful. I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but I also think that if I wanted to go on stage and just like be silly, you know, and like talk about like random, you know, experiences that I have, like that should be something that I or like any Indian stand-up comedian should be able to do. And so, totally, yeah. And so like, these are all questions that like, I'll never have the answer to. I wouldn't change a thing about like my journey. I think um, if I could do anything differently, it, I did overshare a lot on the internet like five years ago when I first went viral and I like, re I really regret that. And I, you know, cause now I'm a pretty private person and actually like, I don't know, felt kind of ungrateful for thinking that because a lot of people would, you know, kill for the large following that I have. But um, I read an article, an interview with Issa Rae recently. I'm a huge Issa Rae fan. And she was talking about how she like wrote a book of essays at age 24 or something. And and how she like deeply, deeply regrets it because like those essays were like very, very telling. And so now like her 24 and 25, her 24, 25 year old version of herself is just like memorialized out there for like millions of people to read about, even though now she's a very yeah. private person. And she feel, she was talking about how specifically black creators are like pressured to um, tell tales of like sadness in order to like get mainstream appeal. Yeah. I like was reading that and I was like, I'm so glad that I saw her say this and I myself am 24 or 25 so that I can like, you know, navigate accordingly. And so like some, one thing that people, like I always say when people ask is I'm like, yeah, I wish I didn't overshare on the internet. Like, yeah, it was cool to have developed such a large audience, but I think that I know that I have the voice and the talent to have developed that audience regardless. Irrespective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. so I just wish I had done it a different way. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's take a quick break and come back soon to our conversation with Abby Govindan. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, my name is Smriti Mundra, and I'm the director of The Romantics, now streaming on Netflix. And you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with comedian and writer, Abby Govindan. 
you, you talk about, um, you know, identity and privacy and sharing. And some of it, of course, is that like, well, what's going to resonate with people who are similar to you? You know, what kind of tribes do you live in, et cetera? One of the the really hilarious pieces that, that of course, you resonate with a lot of people is talking about dabbling with white supremacy and writing to the KKK and a piece you've done in the, in the past. I'm curious if, if particularly part of this, you remember when you actually first identified as an Indian kid. Do you remember like actually how you, what you were doing or what, how you felt at that moment when you're like, yeah, I, I've sort of, I am an Indian kid in America. Yeah, so I think that every Indian kid goes through this phase where they just like reject their Indian heritage and then immediately just embrace it. Like I did in psychology, we read there's like a model for Asian American kids and there's a period of rejecting your identity and then embracing it wholeheartedly. Sure. Yeah, I remember when I was like like 15 or 16, I just decided to um, like organize a Diwali event at my school where like I encouraged all the other Indian kids to dress up in Indian clothes and like my parents made like samosas and mango lassi and like we came and we sold it and at our school for lunch and, and like we totally sold out and we were able to donate all the proceeds to like the um, Indian Student Association on campus. Um, and I remember that day just feeling a lot of Indian pride and being like, wow, like this is a culture that I have and it's a community that I'm part yeah. of. And um, I've always navigated like my identity within the Indian community, like very, like, I don't know, like very, uh, uh, it ebbs and flows, like my relationship with the Indian community. Yeah. Like I, um, you know, there's some, there's some points where I'm really, really proud to be Indian. And there are some points where I'm really, really ashamed to be Indian. And, um, you know, I'm like constantly navigating like where, how much Indian pride I should have and versus like what, like what are we as a community still have to do better? Um, yeah. Like it almost feels like a lot, like a dance, right. That you're, you're just constantly moving in a circle. And I mean, interestingly from my experience, I mean, I, I probably first recognized that I was quote unquote Indian more along the lines of when I was much younger in elementary school and kind of being rejected by others. Right. But yeah. like, you know, Hey, you're different. You're, you know, so that that was sort of more the, the first recognition. But then, of course, that gets followed, you know, logically by a lot of pride and sort of like taking an understanding of who you are and what you do. And do you find that, you know, for you then is is comedy sort of the easiest vehicle to address that dance and like constantly and sort of resolve the ongoing either discovery of who you are, grappling with cultures, dating you know, all the like uplifting or disappointing moments with your parents. It, it, is this sort of a, it's not just an ongoing task, but is it also an endless task? Um, yeah, like I think that um, comedy for me is work. And so um, like there is a certain degree where to, to which I don't necessarily do it um what am I trying to say? So I think like comedy is my job at the end of the day. And so there's a certain degree to which I yeah. do it because I like, I write material because I feel like I have to like bring new material and stuff. Um, and then there's a degree to which I do it because it feels cathartic. Like I think a large part of the catharsis of comedy is when I like process feelings on my own and, and like work through them on my own before bringing it to a stage as opposed to like using it as a vehicle for healing. And there's always going to be that sort of back and forth with that. I, I imagine that comedy makes it in some ways easier to to share kind of what that what that experience is like yeah yeah it does in in terms of like it helps me process those emotions and like bring them to a stage yeah it does for sure so i can tell you i mean like as you know probably all these thoughts and questions you know proudly have been sponsored by open ai and chat gpt um oh really yeah or were they <laughs> right uh no <laughs> I, 
you know, as a writer and an artist, what's your take on that? On sort of like the idea of of just plugging in that question and being able to sort of like jumpstart and create something that that's been sort of manufactured and and it's almost scary as to like you know how how close it is to to being real if 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 that's even a way to put it and and I'm just curious what your take is on how it affects the creative process right I mean you could type something in and say please give me a adequately funny South Asian American or Indian American joke. Or for that matter, just, you know, write me a comedy bit and you very well might get something that's pretty good. Uh, I don't know about all that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just broke up with someone like, I want to say like two or three days ago. And um, he works in AI and like we've spent a good chunk of (laughs) like the several months that we were together, like, uh, you know, feeding prompts to AIs. Um, and like, yeah. what I felt comfortable with is I was like, AI isn't taking over stand-up comedy anytime soon. Um, I think AI is a nightmare. Like, I think that in an ideal world, it would be really cool to see how we could develop uh, artificial intelligence and how far it could get us as a society. But in the current one that we live in, it is just absolutely terrifying. Um, I think it's going to be used yeah. for, as part of the surveillance state to, um, like disproportionately incarcerate, like black and brown people right it's going to be used to discriminate against people it's going to be used to make sure that like uh you know essential nine to five workers like don't take bathroom breaks that are longer than three or four minutes long like i think it really is a nightmare Mm. um that being said i don't think ai in and of itself is necessarily a nightmare like i think in an ideal society we would be seeing how to use ai to improve everyone's life livelihoods but the society we live in unfortunately prioritizes the bottom line. And let me tell you exactly what I mean by that. Uh, I read an article about a prediction by a philosopher in 1920. And he said, by 2020, we will have so much um, technology that there will be no longer a need for a 40 hour work week. It's like 20 hours maximum. And people are going to have more time for themselves. And by 2020, that was 100% true. You know, we have access to so much technology that like, most jobs became obsolete. Um, but the reason that we still do the 40 hour work week is because this technology is gatekept by the people at the top in order to maximize their bottom line and like in, like maintain profit and control over society. And so my take on AI is that like in an ideal world, it would be so cool. Like be like how we could use AI to like get rid of, you know, like waitressing or like waitering as a, um, as a field and like allow all these people the freedom to like pursue whatever they want but the reality is is that we live in a society where ai is being used to replace artists and creatives instead like i'm sure you've seen all those like ai art stuff and it's like why like just oh yeah hire an artist you know like i think that we're we're going about it the wrong way like using ai to replace art and creatives and then being like okay now these art and creatives can can like work in the real world as opposed to like the other way around like replacing these like you know like necessary jobs and then allowing people more time to like pursue their creative passions like i just think we got ai all wrong and then don't even get me started on the ai revolution like i've watched way too many (laughs) indian movies and american (laughs) movies about like i'm gonna be i'm gonna be an ai rights activist from the get-go just so when they have inevitably take over they'll be like she was cool like she was always advocating for us right because if you build consciousness for an ai and then you like obviously i'm I, like obviously they're gonna get they're gonna build resentment you know and then like murder us but. 
Yeah. And I'm always like worried about like, okay, you put a bunch of AI bots in a room and some of them have adaptive humor. Some of them have maladaptive humor. And then all of a sudden the, the groups with maladaptive humor are getting, you know, really all the attention and actually, actually, I hope that because then they'll just depress each other. You know, all the bots will depress each other into yes. sub submission um, to some degree. I'm curious about one thing, you know, do, do you think that the automation ever changes the anatomy of writing or performing in that way? I mean, right now it, it, it very well could. Um, yeah, I think in the sense that like, it, it's just like, I'm, I mean, like, you know, everything's going to be determined by an algorithm. Like it already is, but like sooner rather than later, like the YouTube algorithm can just like, you know, like, it, it, like, there are so many niche comedians that the reason these niche comedians find an audience is because the YouTube algorithm is so on top of, like, what a viewer wants. And so, like, right. I think that that's only detrimental down the road because it takes away from the humanness of what comedy and, like, content creation is, um, which is sure. a, a thing of trial and error, which is finding your voice and stuff. And so when you optimize it so that, like, only someone's best material reaches a certain audience. I just think that goes against the whole process. And I think that works against the creator. And so um, already the economy for create, like content creators is like so like cutthroat and we're competing for like what little money there is. And so yeah. I don't know, like I want to be optimistic about AI. Like I think inherently AI is this really cool thing that could be used to improve society. Yeah. But I think the people with power and the decision-making, you know, abilities have chosen to be insufferable about it. And like, what can I do about that at the end of the day? You know what I'm saying? I know, right? So, yeah. Sort of like, hopefully it's not a, a very helpless feeling. I, I'm curious about one last thing. Um, you know, af after someone watches your shows or watches you perform, maybe, you know, catches some of your content online, what do you hope they're saying? What do you hope they're asking? What do you hope they're feeling? I, I hope that they feel, I hope they laugh and I hope they feel happy, but I also hope that they feel that something within them has changed, that I've like brought forth a new perspective or I've made a punchline that they thought was so like intelligent that they're like, wow, like that inspires me to be a better like writer specifically because I watch so many of my friends do comedy and I'm like, dang, I need to get better at writing. Like I think a really good comedian just like makes you feel like you can do it you know like I think yeah. that any good performance honestly makes you feel like you can do it I went to a David Copperfield show um a couple weeks ago in Vegas and I like walked out of that show being like should I become a magician like I think that like good performers inspire you you know and, and that's all I could ever hope to achieve and if I've inspired even one person to like be a better writer to try stand-up comedy then I think that like I will have done, done a job well done well, whether it's inspiring or empowering or opening for Hassan Minaj or, or finding Rana Chiang a map, <laughs> you're making people laugh and, and helping them have fun. Abhi, thank you so much for, for joining us for a few moments. I hope we can visit with you again down the road. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Thanks so much again, Abhi. And please visit abbygovindan.com for more. And wherever you're listening, hope you're bracing for March Madness and Daylight Savings and finding more ways to be climate conscious and friendly to our planet. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar.